This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. The Automobile Association exists to serve the nation's motorists and it also produces, by far, the country's most widely read and distributed magazine. This week we asked the man who was a mouthpiece for the motorist in the media for over a decade and a half about how cars, transport, travel, town planning and the environment are all issues heating up in the media right now. But first, it was two years ago this week that the country's top media brass feared for the future of their companies as COVID throttled their incomes almost overnight. But two years on, what's the story now? You know, we really are in an existential crisis here because advertising revenues in New Zealand are absolutely in freefall and no medium is exempt from that. That was former New Zealand Herald editor Gavin Ellis two years ago this week, giving MPs on Parliament's Epidemic Response Committee a pretty stark summary of the state of the news media as the first level four lockdown got underway. Of all the industries and services thrown into emergency mode by COVID's arrival, the media weren't exactly top of the government's agenda, even though news was deemed to be an essential service. But for one sitting of that committee, over more than four hours, chief executives and senior editors outlined their fears for the future and they pleaded for the government's support. Some of them were already struggling to keep their revenue up even before COVID pushed their ad revenue off a cliff. And Finance Minister Grant Robertson bleakly diagnosed the media for the committee like this shortly before on that same day. We do have to be careful about ascribing the problems of every business to COVID-19. The media sector is one where the patient had pre-existing conditions, and we we do need to recognise that. Um, We are working closely with the media sector on what is needed to continue, as we discussed the last time I was on the call, the plurality of voices in our in our media. But I just think we need to be careful about that. And the same even applies to Burger King, because I think in 2019, uh, they um, had some issues around uh, the business and even put it up for sale, I think, at one point. Government Minister Michael Wood also raised the prospect of not doing anything to intervene in the media market, letting what he called creative destruction take place to see what would emerge. But Gavin Ellis, deployed as the committee's independent witness, didn't sugarcoat it either, setting out how some media companies were already in crisis mode. We come into this, of course, uh, with the announcement yesterday of the loss of 200 jobs at NZME. It follows the loss of 300 jobs when Bauer magazines closed down. Two further magazines closed yesterday. Now, I don't think there's any more graphic illustration of the dire situation in which the New Zealand media find themselves in in this crisis. And I fear that those job losses are not going to be the last. There were indeed other closures and job losses to come, but the ones that Gavin Ellis mentioned there turned out to be the biggest. NZME, the owner of the New Zealand Herald, other newspapers and half of this country's radio stations, made 15% of his workers redundant that week, and the Herald's editor Murray Kirkness, who was deployed as an emergency host for a brand new news show called Lockdown Special, told News Talk ZB's listeners all about it like this. It's been another big day in terms of business and the economy, as we've heard a lot of tonight. NZME, publisher of the Herald and owner of News Talk ZB, was in the headlines this morning with an announcement that 200 jobs are gone through redundancies or by not filling vacant positions. And also that staff on more than $50,000 a year have been asked to take a 12-week 15% pay cut. It's been a gruelling time, but we fight on and we will continue to do so. 
NZME also culled Radio Sport. Some publications were suspended and the chief executive Michael Boggs told staff the scope and scale of the business would have to change. And it all looked a little bit bleak as NZME's share price fell as low as a paltry 17 cents. But two years later, this has turned around. After a significant slump in 2020, advertising revenue across the media climbed back up the cliff to new heights of $3.2 billion in 2021, and that's bigger than it was in 2019 before COVID hit. And shares in NZME will now set back investors around $1.70. And last week, Chief Executive Michael Boggs told shareholders at the AGM, we continue to expect revenue recovery and profit growth. So is the crisis no longer existential for our media? I asked NZME's Chief Executive Michael Boggs. But first, back in April 2020, did he really think it could have been the end for the owner of the New Zealand Herald more than 150 years after the founding of the paper? As you say, Colin, you think back to that couple of years ago and it was, you know, the government was talking about potentially, you know, tens of thousands, if not over 100,000 deaths. Quite, quite an amazing time and, you know, quite a different market from where we see ourselves today. How then have you reversed that to the point where now you're telling your shareholders, I think just last week, they can expect um, revenue growth and better profits? You're absolutely right about us acting quickly. And and as you mentioned just earlier, you know, we we closed Radio Sport and that was fundamentally because everyone was saying there was going to be no sport for a couple of years. So that's, you know, what drove that decision. And then, as you also mentioned, you know, we had 200 people leave the business and one of the things, again, I remember about that is how gracious everyone was in leaving. We were really trying to act swiftly and give everyone as much certainty as possible. The next thing that happened, actually, is we asked our teams if they would be prepared to take 15% um, pay reductions for a period of time. You know, some months later, we were able to repay that money, and that was really as we saw the revenue um, you know, come back into the market again. So, in those first months, in uh, April of 2020, that month we're talking about, our overall advertising revenue was down 50% on the year before that. The next month it was down you know, nearly 40%. So that, that wasn't a business that was sustainable. You know, We're really seeing the revenue start to return to those 2019 levels. So the year before uh, we had the p- pandemic commence. How critical, Michael, was government support for, for your company at the time? I mean, I think you had in the region of $8 million in the wage subsidies, but also the government reacted by, you know, cutting some of the costs. Uh, I think most of that kind of helped out broadcasters perhaps um, benefited from. Were they pretty important in, in keeping you afloat in, in those, particularly in those early times in 2020 when the future was really uncertain? Oh, absolutely. So if I think about the wage subsidy specifically, because that was by far the, you know, the largest support we got from the government, you know, that, that fundamentally for us, and I think for every other business in New Zealand did exactly what it was designed to do, uh, keep as many of your team members as possible attached to the business, so that uh, when and if um, businesses uh, began to grow again, that you still had your teams. And so those uh, subsidies were really, really important to us. And as I say, as they were for many New Zealand businesses, I'm sure. Yeah, some companies pay them back. I don't think NZME did, did they? No, and I think, you know, there wasn't an expectation that when it was you're provided to, you know, all New Zealand businesses that that was the case. We only took the first wage subsidy. We didn't actually take any of the subsequent offers by the government. So some other media companies, though, say your rivals in newspaper publishing stuff, they didn't lay people off in the numbers uh, you did. Uh, could you perhaps have held your nerve a little and not have to lose those people and still you'd be able to tell your shareholders that revenue is back now and uh, you'd be in a better position? 
you look, I don't want to talk to any of our competitors and what they were going through at the time, but, um, you know, we, we absolutely think we made the right decisions. Uh, we're acting on the information that was available and it's made us a much stronger business because of it. In the early days of the COVID crisis, you published um, a letter to all New Zealanders and all your outlets and all the papers. You were saying you were committed to keeping Kiwis in the know with information they can trust and have confidence in, and uh, you also promised the highest journalistic standards. I mean, do you believe you achieved that? Because, you know, some of your outlets have been criticised for a heavy dose of opinion from, you know, certain people heavily critical of the government, sometimes saying things that weren't right about the way the COVID crisis uh, unfolded. I look back and I, you know, one of the things I'm most proud of is just the campaign we ran around, you know, not the 90% project, for example, getting 90% of people vaccinated by Christmas of last year. You think about it at the time, the government was saying we need to get uh, vaccinated. They weren't prepared to put a target on it. And so we went out early and said, that's something that we feel is really important for the success of New Zealand. Again, I think I'm proud of you know the leadership position we take. At times, we do get things wrong, and I think what's important then is how quickly we respond and and fix or take the learnings for the future. You mentioned that some people talk about us being um, anti-government at times. At the same time, we have people saying to us we're too supportive of government. On a similar story, I can get uh, feedback from our audience, which gives both perspectives, which says to me we are presenting all opinions. We are trying to give a broad view on what is happening, and I think that's really important in a business like ours. I mean, you mentioned that 90% campaign, and uh, even while that was ongoing, you had, for example, one of your biggest personalities, Mike Hosking, uh, saying he, he didn't think New Zealand would get there. He talked about a wall of resistance that would um, that would come up. He said that several times. He's also talked about really not being sure of the value of having the boosters, um, other hosts, Kerry McIver, for example, you know, heavily criticising the government, um, saying she wasn't afraid of COVID and people should stop living in fear. You know, it's kind of contrary to the, the public health message that was out there for the good of us all. Are you quite comfortable with people in your biggest platforms being amplified uh, on the Herald and ZB that were really not giving out information people could trust and have confidence in and, and kind of undermining it in a way? Well, I think at the same time, I um, absolutely can't be imposing anything on what a personal opinion is or an opinion of you know a number of our hosts so you know you've called out a couple and we've obviously got a range of different hosts commentators journalists across all of our platforms and they all bring their varying perspectives and I think that's what makes a rich media uh, obviously news talk ZB you as a couple of people you've mentioned there I'm you know very proud that that's the number one commercial radio station in the country it's obviously the number one breakfast show in the country they enjoy the opinion they enjoy the debate uh, and uh, it's quite diverse opinions. But but did it not bother you at all, say, for example, having gone out there, putting your name to a letter saying people can have trust in this information? I think the same week that you did that, for example, you had Mike Hosking saying half of Iceland had COVID when they'd run testing and, and didn't know it, 50% of them. I mean, it was, it was actually talking about half of 1% of the population that had been tested. That's just one example I know. But... You know, having given that assurance, were you not bothered that you clearly had hosts and opinion? They're saying things which, on scrutiny, were were wrong, and you had put out that uh, letter saying that people really could trust that you were going to make sure that the information was good. We do want uh, to be known for, you know, quality and trust uh, from a journalism perspective. And, you know, fundamentally, I look at my job as the CEO of the business isn't to control the editorial content of the business. 
uh, it has to be uh, driven by you know those who are the professionals and have the independence that uh, they bring to work every day. Another thing that's changed, Michael, in the last couple of years is the government is now more involved in the media than they were before. Um, of course, always heavy funders of public broadcasting and New Zealand on air and so on. Uh, now more money is going from the public to more outlets, including uh, yours, to support journalism. Also the, the Public Interest Journalism Fund. I note the Ministry of Culture and Heritage had a report recently which the political opposition seized on, which kind of said there's no strong case for public money to fund uh, news, commercial news companies. Um, and some of your shareholders, I think, recently uh, at your AGM, I think just, just a week ago or so, expressed concern about the possibility it could compromise coverage of important issues. So, you know, this is even being raised at this management level. Is it something that bothers you and that uh, you're anxious about whether uh, it's worth taking more money from the state if some of your audience and even some of your owners think it might be compromising you? So that funding's never influenced anything that you know the Herald journalists or the editorial teams have ever been involved in. I think in a you know a good example that the funding is being used for at the moment is 25 new cadets, new journalists for the industry under a Torito program. We have 15 of those currently based uh, within our offices, and there's another 10 across other newsrooms in the country. And so I'm really pleased to see, you know, some diversity, um, not just cultural diversity, but just different people with different backgrounds coming into the newsroom and being taught how to be journalists over a cadet program. And I think that's just going to be so good for the future. That's something I think without government funding that wouldn't have happened. And there's zero influence from government as to what those people are being taught or what they'll write about in the future. But broadly speaking, do you think now that, you know, the ad revenues for the whole industry are up above $3 billion again back to 2019, does the commercial news media sector really need increased money from the public purse? Because I guess for you it's actually relatively marginal what you get from funds like the Public Interest Journalism Fund. Yeah, so that funding is substantially all having to be put into incremental roles. So it's not for example, generating profits for our business as such. It's actually reinvestments back into journalism. So again, I think that's been great support for the industry overall of uh, developing more people and increasing the number of, number of journalists in the market. And so it'll just be something that we continue to assess moving forward as to what's the right level of uh, journalism we have for our audience and what we're covering. Another thing that's happened in the last couple of years, Michael, is that uh, the proposed merger with stuff that ends me fought really hard for, that went on for uh, more than a couple of years. That didn't work out. Stuff's ownership went a different way. The powers that be decided a merger wasn't in the public interest or in the interest of competition. Do you regret now kind of pushing so hard for that? Because uh, at the time, the argument was made that, you know, we needed this consolidation. You needed to be big and strong in a, in a very difficult market. And, you know, here we are, 2022, uh, and uh, both companies are still out there, still producing, still competing with each other? Uh, certainly at the time, we were absolutely disappointed that, uh, you know, we hadn't achieved that. And, you know, we were looking to make sure strength from a whole of an industry perspective and actually supporting journalism, given the uncertainty that was happening in the time. But, you know, as, as you all know, um, they've moved on and uh, we've certainly moved on and, you uh, we're absolutely clear on what our strategy is and what the focus is for our business moving forward. 
Yeah, I mean, now, no one perhaps outside of your company seems to be saying they wish that merger had happened. Uh, do you think now, in hindsight, that actually it was good for the rest of us, for the rest of the business and the nation's readers, that actually it didn't and that we still have two different companies uh, operating in a sustainable way? Well, obviously, the key reason was plurality of voice at the time of, you know, more voices were better in the market. And, you know, I'm definitely a supporter of that. So, again, I think it's a, a good outcome that, you know, stuff remains a, a strong, viable business, as do we. Uh, the world could have been a bit different now, though, and uh, if, if things had been as predicted two years ago, and we might be sitting here saying we wish that had really happened. As I say, we were disappointed at the time, but we're very clear on what we need to do now and what our strategy is. Well, in that, that future uh, and your strategy, uh, is it, you think, now secure and sustainable for not just yourselves at NZME, but other news media companies as well? You know, the ad revenue coming back to $3.2 billion for the whole industry. However, you know, as we know, about half of that's now digital uh, revenue, and a lot of that will be going not to onshore media companies like yours, but to offshore tech giants and so on. So are you still worried about that kind of mega trend that no one can buck of, uh, you know, the money going offshore as the digital transformation of media continues? That's why we remain cautiously optimistic, I guess, around the economy we're involved in at the moment. Obviously, there's a few things happening with um, large inflation, um, concerns regarding what's happening with prices overall, business confidence, uh, the property market changing a bit. So in the environment we're in, you know, that's uh, certainly still something that we remain very focused on as to how we continue to grow within that environment that's a little more uncertain uh, right at the moment than I think everyone would like it to be. And I guess you, if you're currently pursuing your own deals with Google and Meta, formerly Facebook, you might claw back uh, in whatever deal you manage to get some revenue uh, from them if they're going to basically reimburse you for using some of the journalism. I know those are deals that are ongoing and you won't want to talk about commercially confidential things like that. But is that really the goal of it in the end, that you get another source of income you can add to that that will hopefully keep you sustainable? It, it obviously does support the journalism by them bringing to life um, our stories. And you've seen that overseas where they've launched Google News Showcase. That's a key component of it. But I think the other component is we will work together with them to actually bring some of our digital projects to life uh, quicker or even new projects and so, again, that's really critical from continuing to grow that digital revenue in the market we operate. Well, that was something the rest of the media, along with yourselves, wanted to negotiate with the two companies. You've gone your own way, cutting your own deals. Is that a bit awkward for you? You are the current chair of the News Publishers Association, which was promoting that collective effort. Now you've pulled out of that to pursue a kind of NZME first kind of solution. Is that a bit awkward that, you know, you're chair of the outfit that represents the mutual interests of the publishers and you're going your own way? Well, we've certainly been clear from when we first talked about this late last year that we would continue to engage one-on-one -on -one with those uh, platforms. So it's not been something that's been done um, secretly. But at the same time, I've been very clear that now that we have concluded our arrangements, that I'll be stepping out of any of the discussions as part of the NPA and, uh, and making sure that uh, they're well supported uh, without NZME's involvement. That was Michael Boggs, Chief Executive of NZME, owner of News Talk ZB, the New Zealand Herald and half the country's radio stations.
Last month on the 6th of March, MediaWatch reported on A Visit to Freedom Village, a video report published by Newsroom in which its investigations editor Melanie Reid depicted the recent occupation at Parliament. Now that report had been criticised by some for its portrayal of Voices for Freedom, a group which opposes some of the government's COVID control measures and which has been accused of COVID misinformation. Now in our coverage we also broadcast an interview with a man who asked not to be named who was feeding false accounts of COVID vaccine injuries to online groups in order to expose them for circulating misinformation. Now this included him falsifying his identity and fabricating the death of his own child, but MediaWatch admitted this information in its report. On MediaWatch, he also described a phone call with Newsroom's Melanie Reid back in 2020, in which he said he told her about his efforts to expose the groups, but he said she wasn't interested in his story. Now, MediaWatch confirmed with Melanie Reid at the time that she had spoken with the man, but MediaWatch didn't put his claims directly to Newsroom at that time in our programme back on the 6th of March, and according to RNZ's editorial policies, we should have. Now, Newsroom says that the reason Melanie Reid wasn't interested in his story was the highly dubious methods the man was using. And Newsroom has further advised RNZ that Melanie Reid wasn't conducting an interview, as MediaWatch had described it, but having a background chat to find out what he had to say. And MediaWatch sincerely regrets that Melanie Reid and Newsroom were not given the opportunity to properly respond to his claims in that programme back on the 6th of March. And finally on Media Watch this weekend, last Tuesday, this was an RNZ's News Bulletin at 7am. Hundreds of drunk drivers who receive an interlock sentence are getting away with never having the device fitted to their vehicle. And thousands more who are eligible are not getting the mandatory sentence. And Morning Report then followed up on that with reporter Emma Hatton setting out the extent of the problem. Startling stuff, worrying even, but it wouldn't have surprised members of the AA who read its regular magazine, Directions. In the current issue for autumn, there's an investigation on drink driving trends which makes pretty clear that that interlock issue isn't the only one of concern right now. And further on in the magazine, there's a face and a name that will be pretty familiar to people from the news down the years, Mike Noon, having just retired as the AA's General Manager of Motoring Affairs for the past 16 years. Now, in that time, he's been a public face for the AA in the media, as well as the voice of the motorists who belong to it. He also helped establish a research foundation which helped produce investigations like that one about drink driving that's in the current Directions magazine, which has incidentally become the most widely read and distributed publication in the country during his tenure. And this week, Mike Noon told me that in that time, the interlinked issues of cars, roads, the environment and planning have all become much more urgent and more fraught. Yeah, I think the environment and urban form are the big changes that have come through there. And it all comes down to space. Well, it really comes down to the allocation of space. And if you move space, road space, to something else, then, then there's a trade-off. Society has changed as well. I, I personally think a lot of it's got to do with social media. So we now have people who are all for something, and if someone's not exactly for what they're for, then they're against them. And um, so we, we're much more divided, much more um, opinionated in those things. People seem to forget that it's not just about one thing. It's not just about all cars. It's not just about all public transport or cycling or walking. Um, the argument isn't an exclusive one. It's, a, it's an and. Um, so and we need more public transport and we mostly need to use our cars less and we need to do more walking and more cycling. But um, we get a lot of people who try to be exclusive and it, it just creates a lot of tension. 
yeah, there are mutual interests, I guess, for all road users. But if we take one thing, for example, in the in the latest um, Directions magazine, there's uh, an interview with Nicole Rosie, the um, uh, Waka Kotahi uh, chief executive. And, you know, she's saying, look, a major goal of ours is reducing short trips. Um, so, I mean, is that something that you and the AA, because, I mean, really, you're an advocate for motorists, you're really fighting for their rights. And, you know, I suppose, you know, the AA, maybe your, your thing is, well, you know, people have the right to drive. They should be able to drive wherever they want as little or as, as long as they want. Um, there are certainly trips that the car is is the only mode that you can use to do what you need to do, to do multiple trips and to move things and, um, and, and meet the time commitments that you've got. A lot of it's to do with time. Taking the car to go, you know, 500 metres to go to the dairy or something, you know, well, it's a hell of a lot more pleasant to walk or, or to cycle. So, yeah, I do think there's a lot of trips that we can do, you know, differently and not use our cars. And, of course, we, we're concerned about all of our members' mobility. But I guess in that time you've been the advocate for motorists and does the fact that I guess the AA is quite a powerful lobby is so many members and you know nothing else can match it I mean of course the trucking lobby have their um, their representation but in terms of other modes you know it's difficult so does the fact the AA is so big so many members actually mean that it's, it's perhaps made it a little harder for other voices other modes you know to, to get heard? I sort of dispute that because our positioning is the voice of the reasonable motorist know, whether it's, you know, they're paying a lot of money in taxes, that their taxes are being well spent, um, that the that the rules are fair and that they're being well enforced. You know, my time with the AA, we certainly recognise that our members aren't cyclists. They are, you know, we, we, we would have more motorcyclists who are members of the AA than the motorcycle clubs. How do you rate the media in terms of their coverage? I mean, are they able to balance out all those competing voices well? And when it comes to like big and controversial projects, you know, that we read a lot about, like Transmission Gully, so much about that, or for example, that that doomed Auckland Harbour crossing for cyclists and pedestrians, you know, a lot of heat about that. Do you think the media separate out the issues and the and the, the claims and counterclaims well? Well, it, it, it it's really interesting because I think the media's been under extraordinary pressure um, and journalists have been under extraordinary pressure. You know, they have to file so many stories a day, so you do see a lot more now um, of maybe just the press release being, you know, appearing um, and, and not a lot of other being other work being done on it. Uh, we do see some good investigative work. Um, certainly there was a lot of work done, um, Dominion Post and things got quite, quite um, detailed in terms of Transmission Gully or what we could find out about Transmission Gully. The problem there was we couldn't get the information. You know, I remember the days when the, the transport reporter, the round, would come around and we'd, you know, a nice microphone or whatever, and we'd talk about all sorts of things. And some of those would appear in stories or, you know, comments later and things. And, you know, that was their sole focus was on on transport. And there just isn't that bandwidth to do that um, or to do some of the in-depth research um, there at the moment. So I think it's a hard time for them. The cycle's so fast, you know. Um, the story's up and gone in a sort of, you know, a day and a bit now, if, if it lasts that long. And on our Media Watch program, you know, we've often featured the, the way that the people who complain the loudest about things like parking getting restricted or parking get being removed and so on, you know, you see those pictures of grumpy people with their arms folded, shopkeepers and so on. We've seen it particularly in big urban centres like Wellington and Auckland. Um, is that something that bothers you as you're looking at road, well, road quick, use? Quick, yeah, clickbaiting really or just trying to get um, audio grabs that are going to make headline or whatever. And I guess the other thing is, you know, everybody's outraged all the time, aren't they? People are just sort of 
wild and, and, and ranting about different things. And, and, you know, if you just took a step back and had another look at it, you know, there's, there's a path through there. And, of course, um, transport does um, raise um, political interest. So there's, a, there's often a lot of uh, posturing about we're spending more or we're doing more or it's the best it's ever been, which is then denied by the opposition of the time. Or, and what you really want is the facts. You know, I used to love Morning Report. And you always got everyone had their say through the program and you got both sides of the argument and you got a balance in there. Um, and, and often we don't get that balance these days. With that in mind, an, another area that's political now and will become more so is emissions. As is often said, transport and privately owned transport is a, a, a fast rising source of them. And I guess, you know, that, that would have been happening, you know, in, in time of the 16 years or so uh, that you were the AA's advocate. So, I mean, can and should the AA in the future play a role in reducing car usage, you know, and, and cutting emissions? The AA is a business and more people and more cars signing up, being members and driving more is all good for you and good for the AA. No, I don't, I don't think we see it like that because I think the car will be there in some form. In actual fact, I think one of the problems that uh, exists and it's a sort of societal problem is that we've got too many cars in the family. Those families may not have the income to support those cars. Cars are not cheap, you know, by the time you insure them and, and depreciate them and buy fuel for them these days in particular. And, you know, once upon a time, you know, families used to have one vehicle and uh, they would make do with that vehicle and the kids didn't all have a car. Now we've got four or five cars in that. So I think one of the things that would be really good, actually, is if people did have less cars in a household. Would the AA um, ever tell people not to buy so many cars, or is that just a... Well, like... I've, I've, in my time in the AA, I've made the argument that I'm making now is that, um, you know, and I, I can think of someone I know really well, actually, who does work for the AA, and they, they've, they've raised, he's raised their, their two daughters um, with one vehicle, and it's, you know, he cycles a lot as well. But there's a lot of... Um, a lot of difficulty in doing that, but you certainly can manage with with one vehicle in a in a household. Not everybody has to have a car. Um, you've just got to work a little bit harder and, and organise yourself a little bit better. And of course, it's economically very good for you. Um, we we can only buy the cars that people are making. The clean car discount and the clean car scheme um, will start to um, impact on the vehicles that we are importing to New Zealand. And that's already underway. Um, that's a very um, ambitious um, set of targets there. And it's going to be very difficult for them to actually have the desired effects. You know, if we want to save emissions, we've got to save emissions on the fleet, which are currently in the fleet. I wonder if you had any advice for journalists covering this too, because, you know, if you said it's getting more contested, a more heated issue. Yeah, look, I, I think the, there's a lot of stuff which is just quite literally not possible or is just wrong you know, that's being put out there and, and, and maybe just looking at that and saying, well, look, that's not going to work. How do we give something that will be helpful to people? You know, there's a there's a there's quite a bit of fear-mongering going on in some of these things as well, you know, and, and um, you know, it's it, it's not necessarily helpful just to sens- sensationalise things. And finally, Mike, in your time at the AA, almost a de- over a decade and a half, the AA magazine directions, uh, that's become... Uh, huge. I mean, by far the biggest, uh, most widely distributed and most widely read uh, publication in the country. Um, does it is it actually a, a moneymaker? You know, carries advertising and so on, so many eyeballs on it. Is is that what it's about, or is it 
you know, a service for your members because, you know, you are an association of members? Um, it's not a moneymaker. Um, actually, we, 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 we try to break even, um, which we don't always um, achieve with every edition. But, um, you know, look, it's, it's an enormous print run. It's, um, you know, the autumn edition, I think, was 665,000 magazines. If that's not enough to pay to print all of those, then you've got to post them. And the post is just extraordinarily expensive and just seems to forever be increasing. You know, the readership, as you say, is, um, you know, it did get up to 980,000. I think it was around 960,000 for the last, um, that's audited readership. So it's an enormous magazine. And, of course, we were very concerned and always are that it's actually um, being enjoyed by our members. So we, we always survey um, members, you know, a number of the members um, after a, an, an edition and see which parts of the magazine they enjoyed. And that, that drives, you know, what we might put um, forward through the editorial board. 660,000 print run. That's, um, that's going to all down to different addresses. That's, you get over a what, third of the country's households. Yeah, well, you see, the AA membership is is over a million personal members. That's like you or me paying a fee to be um, an AA member. And then there's about another 800,000 people who we can go and rescue on the side of the road because they've bought a particular mark of car and, and we will do the road service for them. So it, it, is, it is an enormous, um, you know, membership. Well, for the past 16 years, uh, the media have been ringing your phone a lot, needing comment and uh, contributions and information. Now, you've retired, so, you know, it's the motorhome and the bees that should be taking your time now. So, yeah, that was maybe one last call from us. Um, you know, you think you're out, but the media drags you back in. So thanks very much for talking to us uh, on, on this Sunday morning, and uh, maybe now the media can leave you in peace and, and let you retire. And thank you for that. It's nice to have a chat. And, and thank you to all those... Uh, Many hundreds, most probably, of journalists and reporters I've talked to um, over the years. I've found them great to deal with. As I say, I feel a little bit sorry for them these days because I think it's a lot tougher now to be a, a reporter than it, than it used to be, and, and the deadlines, I think, are pretty horrendous for them. That was Mike Noon, who's just retired after 16 years as the AA's General Manager of Motoring Affairs and as the public face of the organisation in our media. That's all we have for you on the media this weekend, but we'll be back with more at about 10.30 next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show and then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.